Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Hey everyone, welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. I'm your host, David Michael. I am with Tony DeSero. I'm feeling fat and sassy after that meal, man. <laughs> Pasta will do that to you. Oh yeah, some fried spaghetti. It was to die for. So in the second half of the show, we have a pretty exciting interview that I can't wait to get to. And Tony, thank you for squaring this up. Yeah, absolutely, man. So we have an interview with rave outlaw, legend. Uh, how, do you, how do you describe him, Tony? I mean, it's... He's been so involved in the scene for so long, from the rave era to the modern kind of EDM boom and festival scene. He, to me, um, in electronic music, has kept uh, this industry going, you know, from the rave scene to now. Um, you know, he's he's a big reason why our scene is where it is. And I'm not talking our scene locally, I'm talking our scene globally. Yeah. So we're talking, of course, the legendary Disco Donnie of Disco Donnie Presents. And so let's see, what are some of the festivals he's involved in now? I'm looking at DiscoDonniePresents.com, and this the schedule is just insane. I mean, multiple events per day in different cities that that he's responsible for or involved with. You've got July 14th, there's two events. July 15th, there's four events. July 16th, there's one, two, three, four, five, six. So this is a busy guy. This is a busy company. I mean, he kind of came in through the, the rave scene in New Orleans, uh, mm-hmm. starting out during the, the 90s, and was really involved in a lot of the early kind of uh, legal battles that went on between the quote-unquote rave industry or whatever you want to call that you know, with the drugs and the rave act and ecstasy and all those kind of things that, that came about, he was right at the forefront of all that stuff and managed to, uh, to still just after all this time have such a busy, I mean, he's just so involved in anything related to dance music or the electronic music scene here in the state. Well, I think across the globe even. So, uh, yeah, it's really a big deal to have, to have Donnie on today. I mean, he's, uh, He's the guy. <laughs> yes, he is. Tony knows Donnie, so you guys have worked together before, correct? Yeah, we worked uh, a few shows in 2006. We did a couple here in Dayton. One was uh, Paul Oakenfold. It was a Paul Oakenfold tour, and then we did the Crystal Method. Yeah, I was at those shows. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah most shows that Hammerjacks had ever seen, or most uh, patrons Hammerjacks had ever seen, you know, in the building. So it was, it was a great show, but um, Donnie had just hit me up in the email because he was working with all these promoters in all these different cities and I was the promoter here throwing shows in Dayton and he had just hit me up one day and in the email and said hey I want to come check out Dayton I'd like to do a Paul Lukenfold tour date there you know do you have any venues available and he came up and we walked through Hammerjacks he loved it and landed it and it happened to be on my birthday you know on a Saturday awesome. night and it was what year was that 2006 six? yeah 2006 it was uh, April 2006, and... Um, I remember some of that night. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, I wish I could say I got to enjoy that whole night, but, you know, as a promoter, it's really, really... It, it's hard. I got to I got to open for for uh, the tour opener. You know, we weren't direct support. He had a, a tour support. Kenneth Thomas was with him. Oh, yeah. Um, Shout out to Kenneth Thomas. Yeah, and, uh, 
you know, I got to play, but then I got to, I, I also realized that, that it's really hard to play and throw a show to that, yeah. that size, to that magnitude, you know, because you just have a million things you have to worry about and you have to coordinate and you, you know, so. I think that's what's so impressive too about this, this kind of schedule. Now I know Disco Donnie is a CEO of a company of, you know, people who have teams and stuff. So it's, it's not necessarily that he's in 20 places at once, but to have built that kind of system because there's just there's so much involved in throwing even a small show let alone something on that level right you're talking about the struggles of just wanting to be able to enjoy what you're doing and i'm sure that a lot of promoters get especially who are doing big scale events have to get burnt out on that and donnie's been doing it for for ages now for decades so i mean he's it's it's definitely an honor to have him on the show. Um, we were going to kind of maybe take a few minutes here at the beginning of the show to talk about some of the maybe better traits of, of good promoters, you know, what makes somebody able to have that kind of momentum over time without getting jaded and burnt out and, and to stay passionate. I mean, do you ever find that it's difficult to enjoy those bigger shows? Do you Is that something that you have to make yourself do when you're throwing, say, a three-dimensional show or working with uh, a larger scale company? You know, a lot, of, a lot of times when I'm throwing the shows or we're doing the events, it's you're so caught up in the event and doing everything and overseeing everything so it's it's hard to keep in mind that you need to take a step back and look at what's going on and realize what you created if you don't do that then yeah absolutely it's it becomes frustrating and there's nights when it's definitely frustrating you sure know? um you can't knock everyone out of the park i'm sure yeah no absolutely not you don't go into work every day having a great day you yeah, know, right. on on any job, there's always going to be bad days. There's always going to be something that goes wrong or, you know, whatever. And it's always, it's always stressful. But, you know, if you do it for the love of it, like he does do it. Yeah. I mean, we all would like to make the paycheck as well. But, you know, we all do it because we love to do it. And uh, that's the reason why we're all still around, I feel, you know. So back in 2014, I wrote this article it was the A to Z list of passionate promotion. It was just kind of my my sort of thoughts on what good traits of a passionate event promoter, you know, somebody who's like in your case where you're throwing these types of shows because it's what you're interested in. It's kind of a scene building kind of thing. We've got a curated type of show that caters to a particular market. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily going always where the money takes you even you know it's just somebody who's doing this because they love it Mm -hmm. and so kind of how i formatted this article was i call it the a to z list because i came up with you know for every letter of the alphabet i came up with a particular trait nice so um i'm not going to read the entire article because it's very long but i figure i'll just maybe start reading off some of the traits and if any catch our attention we can stop and talk about it for a moment so the top of the article starts out the passionate promoter is dot dot dot. Uh, so one of the traits is ambitious, balanced. So this, I'll stop and talk about that one for a moment. Just because somebody's passionate doesn't mean they have to be unreasonable. Here's an unfortunate fact: throwing events is hard. Throwing a good event is even harder. It's important to maintain emotional stability, as they say, the show must go on. So what I'm getting at here is, over time, especially if there's a case where you're kind of building. A, uh, a particular audience, a return audience, of people who are coming back to your shows. Over time, 
those people are going to start to see how you handle a crisis or you know something happening whether that's equipment failure or somebody doesn't a headliner doesn't show up or something like that you know the way that that the person who's in charge of the event the way they handle that can mean the difference of you know that being a successful night or not do you have any experience or do you want to tell any stories maybe about where you've had a kind of a panic moment as a promoter like maybe i mean on a on a, on a smaller scale mm-hmm. um it actually happened on our first friday okay um a couple first fridays ago one of the djs and myself had a miscommunication where he played on serato you know he had sent me a message and you know, he thought that we had the Serato box. I thought he had the Serato box. And he drove from Cincinnati, and um, you know, which is a 50-minute drive here from Dayton. He was our headliner for the night, uh, our regional headliner. And he showed up and asked me for the box. He said, you know, it's the, you have the Serato box? And I said, no, I thought you had it. And it's like, great. So I, I got on the phone and called. And it was already 1230 at night. You know, I think I called you. I called Trip. I called everybody I knew that that would have a Serato box within, you know, 20 miles of, of the club. And everybody was either asleep or already out. And, you know, I couldn't get a hold of them. I couldn't get the Serato box. So um, I lived two blocks away and a friend of mine took me over to the house. We grabbed my CDJs real quick. We didn't pack them in the box and just took them straight to therapy and hooked them up. And you know, we played and we still took care of the, the DJ that drove from Cincinnati. And, uh, but it was a panic moment. I was like, Oh no, what are we going to do? Is he going to be salty with me? Is, yeah. you know what I mean? It was, it was definitely a, a panic moment, but you couldn't just turn off the music. Right. So you had to figure something out there at the last moment. And right. I'm kind of imagining, you know, obviously I wasn't there for this particular show, but I'm, I'm envisioning you like sneaking out the back door and like, Making sure nobody sees that there that there is a panic moment, right. you know, because this that that show must go on, keep the facade up, kind of thing. Right, you know? that's got to be stressful. <laughs> it was it was very very stressful, you know, and that's just on a smaller scale. I mean, I could go back to a PSG show. It was a, a show that PSG a festival that PSG throws. It's called Number Fest. It's in Athens, Ohio. Man, I would say four years ago. I mean, it it still is rowdy, but it used to be really, really rowdy to the point where, you know, kids were throwing full cans of beers up at the stage. Not because they hated it, just because they thought it was something funny. And they, I mean, they'd been drinking all day. You know, they're just wasted college kids. And it's, it, it is what it is. Well, we had, you know, the, the Red Bull DJ booth at festivals and stuff that Red Bull lets people yeah. use from time to time. Well, we had it on the stage and we had two Technique 1200s, and we had a uh, Rain TTM 57. And um, I want to say it was uh, DJ EV was our host. And in between the headliners, he would play on the techs. Well, somebody threw a full two liter of Sprite, okay, threw it all the way towards the stage, and it landed perfectly, it landed perfectly in the trussing above the Technique 1200s and the rain, bottle cap open, pouring straight down on all that equipment. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you want to talk about a panic attack, you know? It's like, oh, man, you know, he's getting ready to go on. Well, luckily, during festivals like that, when you advance those festivals, you always get... You know, two sets of 1200s, two TTM 57s, two Pioneer 
eight CDJs, yeah, you know, just, just in double case everything. anything happens. But yeah, it happened right before he was getting ready to go on and the last act was over. And, <laughs> you know, and you have 20,000 kids looking at the stage. Yeah. Like, you know, you got to hurry up and go through it. And yeah, you want to talk about a panic attack. Buddy. Did they ever like figure out who that guy was? No, no, no. of course not. No. <laughs> I mean, how, how can you really? Right, right. But, you know, <laughs> stuff happens. Absolutely. And, and yeah, you're frantically, you know, panicking, but, you know, you get the job done. The list continues. Charismatic. Uh, you could also say charm there. Determined. Engaged focused and i kind of put a cheesy little uh anagram there it's follow one course until successful genuine for g um i'll go ahead and read that one here's the thing your audience isn't stupid don't patronize them people won't buy it if you really believe in what you're doing you make real efforts to support your scene and you truly love your audience they will know that you're genuine and people are much more likely to be interested in the person that loves what they're doing versus the person that's obviously trying to make a quick buck or puff themselves up I, I really I really dig that one because that's something that I've stated on our show before. I have a lot of friends and we all have a lot of friends, you know, you that don't even listen to this type of music that we listen to, but because they know we're genuine people that are throwing a good party and they like us and they, you know, they come out and they support our shows regardless if they like techno or house or EDM, you know, whatever, they still come out and support it because they know we're genuine people and we're you know, and if they end up pleasantly surprised, bonus. Absolutely, you yeah. Know, I've, I've had that happen too, where somebody just came out just to support whatever it was I was doing, and like, wow, this is actually kind I of really a cool like thing. this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if, if if it's on a smaller level, you know, like a small hometown, not even hometown, but just a, a smaller night like that. Yeah, absolutely. People need to see that within the promoter. It's him, him or herself, whoever's throwing the event. You know, if they don't dig the person or feel like the person's genuine, then it's they're on to the next. Back to the A to Z list of passionate promotion. We've got H human, and this sort of talks to uh, not sounding like an, a radio ad whenever you're promoting an event, but kind of trying to interact with people like you. You're a friend with mutual interest. You know, being real with people instead of. Even if you are a company in a legitimate corporation, realize that you're still dealing with people. Right. You know? It speaks to that uh, hospitality culture. Oh, yeah. Hospitality. That's what I call this whole business. Yeah. Is hospitality. I imaginative. Thinking outside the box. Jay, judicious. This kind of talks about in today's age of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can't get away with anything. So just using good judgment when it comes to handling crisis or conflict or that sort of thing. Uh, known, K. L is likable. That one's pretty self-explanatory. If people like you, they're more likely to support you. M, meticulous. Attention to detail. N, nurturing. O, is objective. P, is passionate. Of course, we couldn't just use anything <laughs> but passionate there. For right, passionate right. DJ podcast. Q, quality. That's a pretty good one. That's definitely a good one. I'll go ahead and read. If there is one word that I want me, my DJing, and my promotional brand to be associated with, it's quality. It's important to take a good look at what you're pushing in front of people. Is quality, honestly, a word that enters your head? If not, what's the point? Would you want to attend if you had nothing to do with it? There's a place for gimmicks and taking advantage of trends, but your primary focus should be quality and learning new ways to deliver it. You want to make people fall in love with what you do. Yeah, quality is pretty important because I think people get 
so hung up in mark. I mean, marketing is very important in building buzz and that kind of thing over your event. But when they get there, then what? You know, what are they going to experience when they get there? Yeah, it's it, it's it's definitely uh, a, a lot about the experience now. What are some ways that when you're when you're throwing shows for three dimensional entertainment? What's your quality control? How do you add, you know, what, what's your value proposition? I um, mean, how do you go about, do you just try to add new things to each show or what do you care about? I care about the, the, the overall experience. That's something that Billy and I are, are both pretty big on. We don't want it to be that you're just walking into, we want to dress the venue up some way, somehow, with something a little different than it normally is. You know, give people an experience as opposed to just coming in and seeing a, a, a table with some DJ equipment on it and a DJ DJing, you know? Um, something that the patrons can remember and, and kind yeah. of attach to that memory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, the festivals obviously have taken it to a whole, they've taken it to a whole nother level. It is about the experience. It's about the quality of the event. You know, it, it's 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 more than just putting a DJ on a stage with a table. We like to add some extra sound, you know, just to give it a little more than it normally has at the venue. And that's something that I'm really big on as well is, is, is the sound. I, I love good sound. It doesn't have to be... 2018 as much as we would love the more bass you know yeah that's awesome but you know it, it's all it's all about the room that you're in you know it doesn't need to be overkill it just needs to be good full sound you don't want to do a gymnasium and have two mid high tops two powered 18s and and a 10 inch monitor on the stage for your dj when you're in a gymnasium that holds 2,000 people that's oddly specific, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> it is, right. Oh, boy. Um, Sounds like something you may have run into before. Yeah, I, I did, you know, and, yeah. and that's, that's, um, that's, that also bases on quality, I guess yeah. you would say, because y- you have, you, you bring your DJs in and, and they're, they need their proper tools to perform properly. They're not musicians, sure, but if I want to perform the show that I want to perform and have those people remember that experience the way that I want them to remember it, I need the right tools, you know? It was always frustrating to me how many venues locally I would run into that regularly had DJs playing there like multiple nights a week and never addressed the problem of not having a monitor or not having good monitors. There were so many, most places around here were like that for so long. A lot of places still are which is why a lot, a lot of times we have to bring our monitors to the events so that they're adequate. That just kind of blows my mind. That just seems like if you're go- if this is something that you're going to have week after week, why would you not make the 1000 or $2000 investment to just have some decent monitoring next right. to whoever's there on a on know? a club level? Yeah, absolutely. You if you're doing save so much time over, you know, over time. If you're doing a bigger show too, you know, it's you should definitely know those things. I mean, it's just it's just hard to go into a big room and have small monitors that don't even tackle the echo of the bass hitting the far wall and coming back, you know, just just little things like detail like that, that, you know, and I don't blame or want to blame any one 
or even 30 promoters at that, you know, it's just those details I, I think need to be learned by those promoters if they're going to throw shows, you know, that's, 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 that's a big thing. It's, if you, if you bring a band on stage and you have, you know, a five piece band, each instrument wants his monitor so he can, yeah. you know, it's the same thing for a DJ. Well, I think too, when you're, when you're dealing with venues that are open on just for regular bar nights and mm-hmm. then so you know you're throwing a show at a place like you do for therapy for first friday where you mm-hmm. do a, a bigger show i feel like when you're when you do things like bring in extra sound bring in different lighting bring in certain kinds of you know experiences like that what whatever makes the venue a little different than normal it has an effect on the normal patrons of that place mm-hmm. and it makes them feel like they're getting something for paying their cover right you know there's a why would I pay $5 to get in today when I can come tomorrow for free kind mm-hmm. of thing? Well, you go in and they're, it's because we did something here, right. you know. So people feel like they're getting value for their dollar. Yeah, quality. It continues on resourceful. So the passionate promoter is resourceful. So we're talking about kind of how you, you know, calling up people, knowing who to call to get things done, and mm-hmm. whatever, whatever uh, goes wrong at a particular moment, how to handle that. It's always good to have a good sized network. Stimulating. So what I mean by that is helping to support and stimulate an entire scene. Kind of the way that uh, a lot of, really a lot of, most of our local promotional outfits are very scene building kind of things. They Sometimes they get niched apart a little bit, you know, and clicked out, but that, that'll happen anywhere. But in general, you know, a great promo- promoter is concerned about kind of curating that local scene because those are your repeat customers it goes on trustworthy probably goes without speaking nobody wants to deal with shady promoter u is unique v is versatile w is whimsical and then that was i was just kind of talking about being able to kind of live in that moment now and then and enjoy what it is that you're doing and not get too caught up in work stop and smell the roses um, I had to come up with one for X. I had to pull out the thesaurus for this one. Xenial. <laughs> oh. uh, X-E-N-I-A-L. And that's just a fancy way of saying hospitable. Mm. So, you know, as you said, if you want, think of it as the, the hospitality business, uh, it's good for everybody. Yeah. As long as you don't get walked on with that. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why youthful? Just talking about making sure that you... People who are going out to shows like this are either actually young or they're young at heart. So it's important to realize that going in and kind of have that youthful spirit about everything. And Z, zealous. According to the dictionary, zeal is a strong feeling of interest and enthusiasm that makes someone very eager or determined to do something. The best promoters are not simply event planners, they're music activists. Anyhow, if you guys want to read the full version of that article, you can get to that by going to passionatedj.com forward slash AZ. All right, I think that's going to bring us to our interview with Disco Donnie. You ready to do this? Yeah, let's call him. All right, let's call him up. Hello? Hey, Donnie, what's up? Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Good, good. How are you? Good, good. How you been? Uh, not How's everything going? Uh, not bad, not bad at all. Uh, Dayton's starting to pick up a little bit. Hopefully, it gets to yeah, yeah, it gets to take off like it was back in the day. 
So yeah, this is uh, David Michael. David is the is the host. He helps us out here with our shows. He he DJs, produces, and all that stuff here in town. So, David, this is Donnie. Hi. Hello. It's great to meet you, man. Um, really appreciate you taking a few minutes with us to to spend on the podcast today. Yeah, no problem, man. I mean, anytime. So I was kind of talking with Tony on how to start this out, and I, I just kind of had this idea to ask you if there's a question that you're just already tired of answering so that we can just get that out of the way first and then you can enjoy the rest of the interview is there anything that you've you get asked a lot that you're just tired of hearing no i mean i don't think there's anything that i don't think there's anything that's off limits so i'll let you know okay sure (laughs) well hey thanks for being with us i was wondering if you could kind of just give us the quick overview of who disco donnie is like what what is it that you do your what do you consider your job or your mission or just kind of give our listeners because our listeners cover a lot of demographics we've got a lot of newer djs a lot of old school djs and so i, I imagine about half of our audience is already familiar with you but for those who aren't who is disco donnie okay. well i'm a uh, promoter um strictly do electronic music uh started in new orleans have kind of grown out all across the nation and doing shows everywhere, over 100 cities, and also branched off into other countries as well. I mean, how did you initially get involved in the rave scene in New Orleans? Was it just, were you attending parties, or were you involved as a promoter from the get-go? How did that come about? Yeah, no, I was, uh, I just went to a show one night, and it was very small, but it was very, it was very interesting to me. I mean, it was, it was definitely, I walked through a, uh, into another world. And I was just wondering why more people weren't there. And from from that day, I just kind of dedicated to uh, getting people to come. So basically, I mean, I was just doing it for fun. It was just like a hobby, helping people promote, passing out flyers or whatever, word of mouth. And then people started hiring me. And then people started not paying me. (laughs) So then I was like, oh, well, I'll just do it myself. That's kind of how it started. But it it was really just... uh, it was just something fun to do, and uh, you know I enjoyed bringing people in because I, I knew well not everybody enjoyed you know not everybody got it, but a lot of people did, and it, you know it, it, that was a good time. So how did this go for you from sort of a local phenomenon to I mean you're throwing parties all across the world now. I mean was that just did, did this just gain steam and run under its own momentum or I mean how did that? That's a fascinating story to me as somebody who kind of came in after the golden age of the of the rave, you know. I started working with uh, other people like in the 90s. I think I did my first show in Austin like in 95. Okay. Um, I was backing some people in, in Houston, Atlanta, did some stuff in Florida, uh, did some stuff with Pasquale in L.A. It was all in the 90s, but it was just a different time because everything I was doing was kind of a secret because they didn't want... Mm. Everybody had their own city, and that's, you know, you know, you didn't go in other people's cities, and that's just kind of how it was, right? Everybody had their own little thing, and so I was just basically helping people out uh, financially and with advice and stuff in the, in the 90s. Then when the whole market crashed in 2001, it, it, which coincided with me moving to uh, Columbus, Ohio, you know, the game changed, and a lot of people weren't doing shows, uh, so there was just like a lot of big promoters out there so i just started reaching out to them and saying hey you know i'll back you we'll do cheap tickets when the scene comes back we'll be on top and you know i just started building connectors and connecting cities like you know columbus cleveland cincinnati then 
Nashville, Memphis, Portland, Seattle. I was, uh, so I could do like a whole weekend for an artist. So then the agents just started coming to me and giving me the whole tours because I could do all of middle America for them. And I just kind of spread out that way. It was organically. It wasn't like overnight. Uh, I just worked around that way. And then fast forward to, you know, the late 2000s and, you know, EDC is taking off, you know, so the festival scene's coming back, you know, start building up festivals in different cities that don't have them. Um, that's kind of where we're at today. You know, we did probably about 800 shows wow. last year and yeah. And, and six of those were, uh, were festivals. So, okay. Um, uh, you said something about when the whole scene crashed in 2001. Can you explain that? I'm not sure if there was like one explanation to it, but basically you know, the early, like the nineties dance scene was kind of a, uh, a trendy niche type of thing. It was kind of like where all the all the cool people were going and all the hipsters and uh, at the time. And, you know, of course, anything like that, it gets, it, all of a sudden it gets too big. So I think the cool people decided they went on to do something else, right? They weren't going to hang out with everybody else because the scene got too big. It wasn't cool anymore. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't the music that you have right now. So there wasn't a lot of backup behind the scene. Okay. Uh, there wasn't access to the music you had. I mean, you had Tower Records, and maybe there was a few CDs there. Uh, you know, you could get mixtapes at some of the shows, but you know, people didn't even know who the artists were or what the song was. or It's nothing like it is today. So there was really no education. So there's kind of really no basis. You know, once the backbone of the scene kind of pulled out, I think hip-hop came onto the scene. And, uh, yeah, America's like a trendy place. Uh, you know, this, they just moved on to the next thing. So as somebody who has kind of seen this whole thing evolve from your perspective, I mean, wh- what is the current state of EDM? Is that sort of, if you want to call it EDM, I mean, what is the, is that rave spirit still alive? I mean, I think it is. I mean, I, I, I think it's still going strong. I think this time, this version of it is, uh, is, I mean, I know people kind of, you know, dream back of the, the glory days and the, the old times, but you know this version of it is a uh, uh, is a lot better, a lot stronger, and you know has a has a lot more legs to it. Um, so I mean we're conti- you know we're continuing to get new people all the time. The, the numbers are still growing. They're not growing like they were in, in 2009, 10, 11, 12. But you know we're still seeing growth. You know, and there's new artists coming out weekly. You know, some little kids in his bedroom right now making a track some 60 year old who's going to be playing main stage at at my festival in in two years you know i'm going to be paying him like a million dollars right so this is like the but you know that's what we need because that's we didn't have that before so we really have a a backbone and these kids are you know it really in their bedroom right now and they're going to be the next superstars and that's going to keep the scene going you know, it makes me really happy to hear you say that because you're right. I mean, a lot of people who have been th- through the whole kind of thing uh, really kind of, you know, wax poetic about the good old days and everything. But you you still sound like you have a really, you know, positive and, and forward-thinking outlook towards the whole scene. I just uh, wanted yeah. to say that I appreciate that. You know, that's something that yeah, we try yeah, to promote yeah, no. here. Got, you know, you got to – that was a different time. That was something new. That was visuals on bench sheets. You know, uh, <laughs> this is this is something different. Uh, I can enjoy them both, but right now I'm enjoying this one. So, 
I mean, now that you've, I mean, you've literally been been doing this for decades. Do you still love it? If I can ask, as far as throwing shows, yeah, and- yeah I still love to do shows. I mean, I could have stopped, you know, a while ago, but you know, I still enjoy it. And uh, people always ask me how long I'm going to do it. I mean, as long as I'm enjoying doing them, and people are happy with my shows, and nobody's trying to hang me or anything like that, or uh, <laughs> so I- I'm going to keep doing it until. So I don't want to do it anymore. So uh, hopefully I've got I've got 23 years in. Let's see. Let's see how far I can go. <laughs> so speaking of people coming after you, I mean, there is a story behind that, right? I, I kind of as part of doing my homework for this talk, um, I watched the uh, Rise, the uh, documentary that was kind of about the New Orleans scene and, and you coming up and where I guess where does the the subtitle to that documentary where it refers to you as Rave Outlaw? Can I ask about that? Yeah. Um, so back in, this was in like 2000, the federal government decided that they were going to run a test case to try to basically shut down the um, shut down raves. And unfortunately, I was the winny, winner of that since I <laughs> was using the same venue and very successful every month. And they had this, you know, the DEA and the, uh, you know, a whole team, they followed me for, you know, had my phones and followed me for eight months. And uh, you, what they tried to do was they basically, they ended up raiding the show because they thought that we had, we were, you know, their thesis was that we had drugs. We brought the drugs in before the show and then we sold them from backstage. So, you know, they, they came in thinking they were going to walk away with this big, giant, you know, thing of drugs. They opened up all the sound equipment and all the DJ equipment and basically they got... One bartender had a joint on him, so uh, all that. <laughs> so they were kind of had a little egg in their face, but they still, you know, were going forward with the case. And basically, what they tried to do was they had tried to take a. It was an archaic, an '80s law about crack houses, and it was a way they tried to control. You know, when the crack house epidemic hit, they started trying to put the owners of the houses in jail uh, if they allowed people to sell crack out of the house. I mean, it was it's it's a crazy law anyway. But uh, so anyway, they tried to apply that to to concerts and you know to well to raves, and uh, so definitely was a definitely wasn't a good thing. <laughs> uh, but you know they they were trying to it was zero to twenty for the drugs. They were, they were buying drugs in the shows, and they were just letting those people go, and then they were putting it on my no, my thanks. tally, right? So it was zero to twenty for the drugs they bought. And then it was twenty to life for the CCE since they had they had gone to eight shows, so they charged me for every show. So uh, you know that was a scary time. No uh, kidding. Luckily, yeah. I mean, and you think about it, that's uh, sixteen years ago. I mean, a lot's changed since then. You know, what, mm-hmm. you would have said that we had legalized marijuana and gay marriage, and right. you know, sixteen years ago, people would look at you like you were crazy. So you know, the world changes; it adjusts. It betters itself, and you know that was just a different time. And luckily, I had the, some good friends and the ACLU and a lot of people behind me, and I was able to keep doing shows, all right, and not go to jail. I went to jail for one day. Yeah, we're we're definitely glad to hear that for sure. And I, you know, I'm I'm kind of disappointed that we usually have another co-host. His name is Trip, and and he really likes to talk about. Uh, the Rave Act and all the kind of litigation that happened around those times. And it's something that's frustrating to me because 
it was kind of a targeted scene when it's like anywhere where there's people playing music, there's drugs everywhere. You know, it's it's not like I've gone to a rock show and just felt like I wasn't surrounded by drugs. So it just felt very yeah, yeah targeted. targeted. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was. I mean they 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 admit that they, you know they wanted to stop and they had a you know they had a warped perception of what was going on. When I sat down with the U.S. attorney, you know he didn't understand why people were driving for eight hours to see these DJs. It just, it, it was, they couldn't comprehend it. They were like, they're coming to get these drugs. I'm like, why, why wouldn't they just go next door and get the drugs? Why are they going <laughs> to drive eight hours? So, right. Uh, yeah, it was a learning curve for them. So, you know, luckily in the end, it was better that it happened to me than to somebody else. Cause you know, my hands were clean and, uh, uh, it turned out I used it in a positive note. So Good. I thought people weren't going to work, work with me anymore or, but I would go into venues and they're like, oh, you're the crack house guy. Yeah, come on in. You know, so I was like, all right, this is pretty good. So it, it it turned out okay. They were taking it pretty far. When I lived in Florida, I remember um, you weren't even allowed to have glow sticks or anything inside of a club. They looked at that as paraphernalia. Right. Well, they, that's what they, when they raided the place, they confiscated like glow sticks and, you know, all the other stuff. Like, yeah, that, I think that's still one of their contentions. So who right. knows? Donnie, I know you're a busy guy. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Sure. Tony, I think you had one you wanted to ask. Yeah, I have a I have a question for you. Um, so I was I grew up in the nineties rave scene as well, and here in the Midwest it was mostly based on house, drum and bass, techno. As EDM blew up and that whole style of music, I noticed that the techno and the in the house and all that stuff took a back burner, but now as I'm looking at Ultra and all of the festivals now, they're starting to do like the Resistance stage, and they're bringing in the uh, Hot Sense '82, Nicole Mudaber, uh, all your drum code guys. Do you see that style becoming more acceptable amongst the EDM community? Yeah, I mean, look, it's always the dance scene's always had different genres going on, and people, some people like it all, some people gravitate to certain things. You know, I definitely think it's more of an, uh, uh, an adult sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, will it be main stage at a, uh, at a festival in, um, Chicago or no, Chicago might be a bad example. Would it be main stage at a festival in Florida? Probably not. But, you know, I think it's great that people are listening to different styles of music. I'm great. I'm so glad we can put it at our festivals now. Um, cause you know, you have to maybe, Five or six years ago, I couldn't put playhouse music at a at a festival because nobody would be in front of that stage. It'd be embarrassing for for right. the artist, and, and you know. So it's definitely grown, and I'm I'm glad that it has. And maybe that's a gateway sound for some other people to come into the scene. Maybe it's also a way to once once people get tired of that big room music or the you know jumping up and down. Maybe this is a good way for people to stay in the scene, but you know, not bang their head all the time. So. Uh, <laughs> As they mature, their sound matures. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a good thing. So uh, I'm glad. I mean, as a promoter, you want as many options as possible. And, you know, I, I was a house head, uh, so I was shocked that it came back because it was dead. It was gone. Right. And, uh, you, you know, I couldn't book any of the guys that I, I used to book, and it was uh, it was frustrating for me. And it's pretty crazy to do, like, a disclosure show or something. You have, yeah. you know, uh, 2,000 guys with tight jeans and uh, <laughs> beers, you know, and micro-brews, and they're, like, jamming. So. <laughs> Can I ask who you like to listen to, you know, when you're not working? Just 
in the car or going for a jog or whatever? The main thing is that I, uh, I mean, I guess if I had to, if I put something on, it would definitely be like that house sound, you know? Okay. Um, like the tropical house stuff. But, I mean, a lot of times I'm listening to the, I'm still getting a lot of music from new artists and music from, you know, artists that I've worked with before that they're putting out new. So I'm constantly listening to that and trying to keep my ear young. My body's getting old, but I keep that ear young. <laughs> what, is, what is your favorite quality in a DJ? My favorite quality? Huh. Wow. I mean, I think people think of it as like something that's, that anyone can do, you know, and, you know, it's, it's not that easy. It does take a skill that people don't realize. And, you know, it takes a certain person also to want to be on that stage in front of all those people and do that. You know, I chose to be in the background putting stuff. I don't want to be on that stage. <laughs> um, so, you know, I appreciate that they're, they're willing to do that. And, you know, and that they're the ones that move in the crowd. Do you have a maybe a least favorite quality, or maybe to put it another way, what what do today's up and coming DJs need to learn? Hmm. I know we're putting you on the spot there. <laughs> yeah, it's like absolutes, right? Um, I the thing I miss, the thing about the DJs today is that it's different than from before. Is that sometimes now, before I really would get to know them when they were smaller. So I could build a personal relationship. Okay. Um, I was also probably a lot closer in age to them, so that probably helped. But um, now these guys get so big so fast, mm. it's uh, it's a little bit harder, you know. And I miss that. Uh, you know, I would do say you have like a dead mouse or a squirrel. Even back then, you know, I would do five or six dates with them. Then five on the next tour, five or six dates, and then you know. But these guys now they go from zero to sixty is so oh, fast. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm not able to build those. I mean, it you know, it's different when you're sitting down. It's a club show, and and you're taking them to dinner and stuff like that. Then when you're meeting them for the first time at a festival, and they've got handlers and people around them, stuff like that. So yeah, that's what I miss. I know I didn't answer the question, but I changed it. No, I, I like that response. That's <laughs> that's an interesting perspective. I never really thought of it that way about the, how it's affected you know building those longer term relationships, other than the kind of flash in the pan thing. Right. I'm wondering, uh, Donnie, what's your next big thing? Is there anything that uh, you're working on right now that you're allowed to talk about? We're going to be launching a new festival. I can't say where, but it's in a it's in a city that doesn't have one. So Dayton, Ohio. Uh, you know, I think every I think every city needs their own electronic festival. So I'm trying to do it if I can. Tony says Dayton, Ohio. Ohio, oh, Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> we'll welcome you with one open day. arms. <laughs> That, yeah, I don't know if that was on the list, but I'll add it. Awesome. Please do. <laughs> okay. Well, Donnie, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us on the show. We really uh, appreciate it, and we're we're glad to have you as a friend of the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I've been knowing Tony for a long time, and good guy, and we did some stuff together yes, we did. back in the day. Awesome. There you go. <laughs> yes, we Ohioans. Did. All right, let's go. We need to re- We need to reconnect at Club 40 again. Yeah, yeah, Club 40. Oh, that one, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> oh, shit. Definitely okay, good times. that's not good. Definitely yeah. good times. I need... All right, well, thanks, guys. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Don. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, D. Appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionate DJ or on Twitter at DJ with Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning. Uh.